Hello and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. Hi Tabby. Hello Catherine. How are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm really excited. Why are you really excited? Because today we're talking about some good stuff, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're always talking about good stuff. Yeah, but I'm especially excited for today because we are talking about stuff around the subject of women because it's Women's History Month in March. Heck yeah. Yes. For the last few months, uh, maybe even a year, I've been working on an online exhibition. Uh, Ooh. I know. It's about the women who worked at Walkton Works um, and I'm just really excited because it's gone live. Yay! Where can we access it? Where can we look at this wonderful website? If you go onto the our website, the Milton Keynes Museum website, and then you click on what's on um, at the top and then there's a drop down menu for exhibitions or online exhibitions and then you can access it through there. And then you can access all our past exhibitions as well, which is cool. I forgot about those. <laughs> They are very good and very memorable, even though Tabby forgot them. (laughs) I I didn't forget, I forgot that they were accessible from the website. Oh, okay, yeah. (laughs) So, shall we get into it? Absolutely. Okay, so a while ago, as I say, maybe about a year ago now, um, I came across some staff books from Walkton Works, um, and I'll talk a little bit about Walkton Works in a second. But in these books, they listed... um, each workshop and categorise the workers. So they were skilled, semi-skilled, labourers, apprentices, juniors, and also they listed female, adults and juniors. So female was its own category. You didn't get skilled or semi-skilled females. They were just females. (laughs) Um, And it gave the numbers of each category of workers working in each shop. And I thought, oh my God, this is fascinating. Like I can do something with this. It was really interesting. Um, So one of our lovely volunteers typed up a sample of these data sheets for me. So shout out to Kim, who apparently enjoyed doing that. Um, And I extrapolated various information and statistics uh, from these. Unfortunately, we don't have a consistent run of the books, um, only for short periods. Um, So I created an online exhibition that presents some of the stuff I found out for three different time periods. Um, So it's definitely not the full story, uh, but I'm looking at it as a good start. Um, So we've talked a bit about Wolfton Works before, um, but I'll just explain what it is. Uh, When the London to Birmingham Railway was approved by Parliament in 1833, the Act included a clause that said a railway works should be built around halfway along the route because in those days they they thought it was unsafe for locomotives to go more than about 50 miles without an inspection so they needed somewhere where they could go everything could get checked and then they could carry on their journey that feels like really good forethought Mm. yeah just you know making sure that everyone's safe and everything's safe absolutely so to begin with the works repaired and maintained locomotives the railway company needed to house the workers employed by the works and then you needed all the amenities that people require when they live somewhere so Wolverton was created pretty much a victorian new town Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's even on a grid system as well which i love really mm. oh, i guess if you look at a map yeah. it is yeah. i never thought about that yeah 
learned um, something new. Yeah, right again, here. another forethought of what was to come. Absolutely. The precursor to uh, the Beagle Milton Keynes. Um, so in 1865, Walton became the London and North Western Railway Company's designated carriage works and so they built railway carriages and have carried on ever since. And Wolfton Works became the largest carriage works in the UK and employed a huge amount of people um, and they were mostly men. Um, so we know that there were engineers, carpenters, electricians, welders, blacksmiths, all sorts of workers, um, including apprentices from the age of 14. Um, what is lesser known is the story of women who worked there. We all kind of know more nowadays um, how women worked in in the factories during the war um, and it's true that the female workforce increased during these times at Wolverton Works but actually women had always worked there um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what they did. In the early 20th century um, an average of 3% of the workforce was made up of women which is not a huge amount but they're still there and they're doing important jobs and um, their roles were pretty traditional. They worked in the trimming shop, the polishing room, the dining hall and the laundry and they also worked as cleaners and administrative staff. What I couldn't quite work out actually was whether the marriage bar applied to them. So the marriage bar was a rule in certain professions where women were permitted to work only until they got married. And so once they got married, they had to give up work. And this was a widespread unwritten societal rule anyway. Um, but in certain professions, it was an actual actual law but the thing is I did find instances of where women at the works carried on working after they had been married so I'm not sure if it applied to them or not because it did apply to factories but clearly there were some women who carried on working at the works when they got married so maybe it wasn't a rule who knows? Um, we have employee record cards for some of the people that worked at the works and I've used these to try and delve a bit deeper into the lives of some of the women who work there. It's worth talking a little bit about my method, uh, which relies heavily on gender name stereotypes. Um, so I would look through the cards and find the ones with like traditional feminine names. And this is by no means a foolproof method. <laughs> Not least because it misses out anyone who only has their initials on the card. It also misses out anyone who identified as a woman but was having to live as a man. And it includes anyone who identified as a man but was having to live as a woman because of society. Um, but I've done my best to have a look at some women and tell you their stories. Gladys May Brooks was born in West Ham on the 30th of April 1900 and came to work at the works when she was 15, so during the First World War. She was there for a couple of years until she was discharged on the 20th of December 1917, which was a day when a huge number of people were let go from the works. Like, I don't know what was going on in the war or the war effort at that time, but loads of people were let go on the 20th of December 1917. Like, That's weird. Yeah, maybe they something happened where they knew they weren't going to need these people anymore and they just let loads people go um but i don't know right before christmas as well yeah that's not great it's mean anyway gladys came back in january 1920 and worked in the polishing room uh, this is where workers would french polish the furniture fittings making sure it was all of like the highest standards before the carriages went into service so in 1933 around 50% of the polishing room employees were women. Ellen Smith worked in the trimming shop where almost a fifth of the workforce was made up of women. They worked in the sewing room and created curtains, seat covers and other soft furnishings. Ellen started at the works in June 1923 and had a couple of injuries in her time. In September 1924, she cut the white of one of her eyes. <gasps> oh my God. That's grim, isn't <laughs> it? Oh, that's really grim. 
I had a splinter in my eye when I was like three or four years old and it was just oh. I'm so squeamish <laughs> about eye stuff it's so terrible how do you even manage to cut that I don't know I'm like did she accidentally stab herself in the eye with some scissors while she was cutting some curtains <laughs> moving on she also suffered a white a wound to her right eye and eyelid in 1926 maybe she shouldn't have been working in the trimming shop I feel like sharp objects were not her, not forte. her, not her forte at all. <laughs> Ellen's adopted father, James Sutherland, was a clerk at the works and also in the works fire brigade, which um, Sarah talked about on our Wolverton episode. She married Sidney Pulley at St George the Martyr Church, which is in Wolverton, and in 1931, when her father gave her away, she wore a pale, sing- pale pink silk dress and a matching hat. And she had a bouquet of roses. I love that. <laughs> it's cute, isn't it? Ellen, well, before she got mar- married, Ellen lived at 52 Buckingham Street, which just would have been one of the houses demolished to build the Agora 50 years later. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it was like right on the end and just one of those. Uh, Lily Moucher was born Lily Styles in Buckingham on the 4th of August, 1883. She married uh, Frederick Moucher in December 1903. When war broke out in August 1914, Fred left their home in Ashton on the 31st of August and went to work as usual. Um, so Ashton's in Northamptonshire, it's just south of Road uh, and near Stoke Bruin, I think. Mm. That day he joined the Special Reserves without telling Lily and just over a year later he died at, oh you might want to pronounce this one for me. <laughs> it's up. I don't know, I've never seen that word before. Okay, he died somewhere in France. <laughs> with the 2nd Battalion of the Oxford and Bucks Light Infantry. So she was left a widow. In June 1917, a struggling single mother of two, Lily joined the works as a carriage cleaner. Um, She had previously been employed by Reverend William Baldock at Ashton Rectory. And we know this, um, there's a newspaper article detailing her appearance in court. She was accused of stealing £4 from the house while she worked there. £4 is over £200 in today's money. Wow. Um, She did plead guilty um, and the case was dismissed after the Reverend Baldock requested leniency for her. Um, Lily was receiving a war pension of around 18 shillings per week, which is around £53 today. And if she'd been convicted, she would have lost that. So she was obviously desperate in desperate times. And he was just like, you stole almost £200 from me, but I can understand why. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. And then there was more hardship in 1926 when Lily was summoned by her landlord for possession of the house she was living in. The court ordered her eviction within three months as well. She's not very lucky, is she? No, Lily did not have a very easy life at all. She worked at the works right up until her death in 1939 when she was 56. And the cleaners would have cleaned the carriages before their introduction or their return to service. And there were also general cleaners who cleaned the offices. And these workers, um, so we have the employee record cards, but on the record cards, the office cleaners generally don't have their first names on them. They're just down as Mrs. So-and-so. And I just think that's not great either. <laughs> it makes it really difficult to find out information about them. But also, I just find it really disrespectful. In the laundry, the workforce was overwhelmingly female. Uh, when it closed in 1933, 98% of the workers were women. I presume that it had a male foreman um, and he was the 2%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lillian Eaton, known as Lil, was born in Warwickshire on the 5th of December 1895 and married Frederick Fincher in June 1914. She started at the works in March 1920, earning 14 shillings a week as a laundress. And this is about £20 in today's money, so £20 a week. 
Lil suffered a couple of accidents whilst at work. Nothing quite as gruesome as the other one. Um, she sprained her right wrist twice and bruised the back of her hand. Prefer that over tearing the white of my eye. Yeah, it sounds a bit more manageable, doesn't it? Her employee record card is stamped with a red stamp that reads Loyal General Strike 1926, which meant that she continued working during the largest industrial dispute in the country's history. But I find it interesting that they kept a record of who was quote-unquote loyal. Yeah, that's a bit... It's a bit dodgy. It's very dodgy. I don't think uh, I don't think they allow that these no. days. <laughs> Edith Mills worked in the dining hall as an attendant. She originally started in the sewing room, coming straight from school in 1923. But in 1928, she pierced her finger with a needle, which then became septic. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so just don't work. Don't do any sewing for yeah, a job. Yeah, that sounds like the most dangerous one. <laughs> And this might have had something to do with her move to the dining hall because it was not long after that she moved um, to the dining hall. In September 1930, she married John Rowledge and resigned from the works. And in 1936, Edith and John had a child called Ivan. And I know this because there's a very lovely newspaper article detailing the fact that Ivan won first prize in the baby show at the Labour Party's fate at Old Bradwell that year. Baby show! <laughs> Oh my goodness. Ivan was a bonny baby. <laughs> so cute. And the Rallages were very involved in local Labour politics. Um, and John was the Divisional Party's financial secretary. Margaret Stafford was in charge of the ambulance room at the works from 1931 until her death in 1945. She was born in Belfast and came to England to train as a nurse. She joined um, the London Midland and Scottish Railway in 1925. Um, Firstly, she was in charge of the ambulance room at Derby Carriage and Wagon Works, and she then transferred to Barassi Works, which is southwest of Glasgow the following year. Um, the Second World War broke out just as Margaret was entitled to retire, um, but she saw it as her duty to stay on, uh, often enduring 11-hour days. She lived in Cambridge Street and was a big part of community life by lending her skills and expertise to the local St John's Ambulance Brigade mm. through like training and volunteering with them as well. Margaret never got to experience retirement as she died in 1945. That's a shame. Yeah, and interestingly on her uh, employee record card she's paying into a pension as well so I'm wondering if she ever saw the return of that pension because if she didn't that's a bit... Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Um, so her funeral was attended by many locals, including the superintendent of the works, which is like the head guy in charge, and representat representatives from St John's Ambulance. So moving on to wartime work, we know, as I said, much better now the stories of women coming to work in the factories to bolster the war effort and the workforce. Um, loads of men had gone off to fight, um, so they needed replacing. And it was no different at Wolverton Works. Um, during the First World War, it was mostly armature work and women and girls were brought in or transferred from other departments to focus on this. Um, Ella Hall was born on the 14th of August 1889 and married Cecil Booth in September of 1915. She joined the works as a munitions worker on the 29th of October 1917. And Ella stayed on after the war and joined the laundry in 1919. Um, she was also loaned to the accounts department twice as a temporary clerk. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's done all over the place. Um, so moving on to the 
Second World War, um, in March 1941, women made up 2.74% of the workforce. So it's around that 3% that I mentioned earlier. And then by the week commencing the 26th of September 1942, this had risen to 15.59%. So basically rising from 2% to 15%. That's, that's a big difference. <laughs> Just over a year, yeah. Um, the works was given over entirely to war work. Uh, they were producing horse or gliders for the D-Day airborne assault. They were repairing Whitley bombers and typhoon wings and converting motor vans into armoured vehicles. Um, women were recorded as working in many of these areas um, across the organisation and were usually paired up with a skilled worker acting as their mate. So many of the jobs that men were still doing were reserved occupations, so they stayed there, uh, paired up with uh, women who came in to work with them and help them out. Um, so this one, I think you said, was your favourite of the stories, um, Doris White. Yes! <laughs> And you can actually read about the wonderful Doris White in her own words. Um, she told the tale of her time at the works during the Second World War um, in an autobiography which is called D for Doris, B for Victory. I love that. It's, it's such great. a good title. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, she and her mother were bombed out of Islington and came to um, the relative safely of the New Bradwell countryside. <laughs> Which seems ludicrous today to think of Wolverton and New Bradwell in the countryside. I know. But they were, basically. Yeah, so her aunt lived in New Bradwell and they went to live with her aunt for a little while. And she got the invitation letter to do war work, as many women did. And she chose repairing aircraft wings as her job because she thought that it sounded the most interesting. It does. It does. And also sounds safer than whatever sewing prospects yeah. you yeah. have. Don't do the sewing. <laughs> So Dorish joined the works in 1941. Um, she was initially a grade three fitter, helping to patch typhoon wings. Um, but she did move around and do a number of different things as well. So yeah, I definitely re recommend reading that book because it's, it's very interesting and she's a, a good writer. So that is a whistle-stop tour of some of the roles women had at the Wolfton Carriage and Wagon Works. Um, and I, I really hope we can take this further and like discover more. So if um, anybody out there knows anything about women working at the works or had relatives, or if you even work there as well um, yourself, please do get in touch um, because we would love to hear from you. Yeah, it'd be good to work out the, the initials, right? You said some of the cards you can't work out because you've just got an initial and a last name. So mm. if you can match any of those up with, uh, with the first names. Would be yeah, really cool. and I think another way to look through the cards would be looking at people's jobs as well. Right. Now that we know who's doing what or where the women are, were working, basically, we can kind of look out the ones that we've missed who are in that, those sections. Yeah, so. was it laundry that had 98%? Yeah. Yeah, so you know if you've got, if you've got 100 laundry cards and there's a bunch of initials you know they're not there's gonna be like what two men on them yeah exactly so yeah. um yeah it would be good to kind of get more information so hopefully we can do that it's a really cool project yeah it's, um, but yeah if you want more information and pictures and stories of a few more women um check out the online exhibition uh, and let us know what you think the pictures are really good thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to find pictures of women at work um just because there's so few out there so yeah it's absolutely. really interesting so um, I'm going to talk about something completely different from the Wolverton Works. Always. But uh, still on the theme of this month being Women's History Month. Rather Amazing. than talking about a area of Milton Keynes, I'm going to talk about archaeology as an actual field of study, mm -hmm. basically. So there's a lot we can say about women in the ancient world. Um, lots of evidence for daily lives in Milton Keynes through the archaeology. 
but I thought a more interesting discussion would actually be how do you identify women in the archaeological record? Because unlike with Wolverton works, we don't have books, we don't have cards, photographs, anything like that. I'm a bit jealous about the photographs because um, <laughs> I think they're so cool. Um, Are there but, any like drawings? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess we have drawings or like statuary, but that, it doesn't yeah. feel the same, right? Because it's not of a real person. Mm. Um, so the real thing for archaeology is, you know, how do we determine what women wore, what they did, and how they actually lived their lives? One way we do it as archaeologists is by using textual evidence. So you can read texts from people writing in that time period. The problem with this is that you don't have a lot of women writing in the ancient world. Um, if you think of ancient Greece, for instance, you've got Sappho, who's like the most famous female writer, and then basically no one else. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that these texts are always going to be biased against women because they're written by men in a male-dominated society. Interestingly enough, we actually think that the oldest story in the world is actually written by a woman. Really? Yeah, priestess. So we know that um, in Mesopotamia, priestesses were taught to read and write, but mm -hmm. that's not really true for the rest of history as we look at it. So another way is through epigraphical and pictorial evidence. So as you were talking about, statues, things that you've drawn, things that you write, graffiti, things like that. But yeah. again, a lot of these end up being mythological or allegorical figures. You don't really learn a lot about women by looking at a statue of a Roman goddess. Mm -hmm. You're like, ah oh, yes, there's a goddess, nice. It might be their idealised view of a feminine goddess, exactly. real life woman. No, it has no bearing on it. The other way is through bioarchaeology. And um, with regular archaeology, you know, we're looking at cultural evidence, women in the past, what objects did women interact with. But with bioarchaeology, we're actually looking at the bones of people and oh. what does that tell us about women. So there's a lot of recent scholarship on the idea of kind of what it means to be a woman and kind of even broader what it means to have a sex or be a gender in the past and a lot of this is kind of wrapped up so I'm going to try and go through this in a way that okay. makes sense. <laughs> so to begin with I'll talk a bit about bioarchaeology sometimes called forensic anthropology or forensic archaeology. It focuses on specifically human remains so we are looking at human bones because by studying bones you can study disease, illness, you can um, infer profession, social standing, and you can study trace of pop across population groups. So you can say Vikings were on average this tall because you've got the bones, you do an average of how tall they all are, there you go, there's your number. You can look at bones and go, ah, oh, this person had scoliosis or, you know, they'd broken their leg and it had healed, things like that. That is all bioarchaeology. Um, and it's really cool. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and be like, yes, I understand bioarchaeology because I can just about identify a human bone from an animal bone, but it is a really cool field. It's more than I can do. Yeah. <laughs> so in the 20th century, the most common way to indicate if a skeleton was female or male was to study the pelvis and the skull. In the 1970s, studying the skull was proven to be a terrible way of indicating if a skeleton was male or female. As to be expected, the entire idea that the skull could be used to differentiate between male and female was an outdated idea that women had smaller brains and thus smaller heads. Oh. But in reality that's not true and also means nothing. Very problematic. It's super problematic. So in the 1970s archaeologists were like, this is bad, we should no longer do this. It's important to note that the push back against this method actually coincided with the beginning of the fight for equal pay in the workplace. Okay. So a lot of how we 
view uh, skeletons, a lot of how we identify things in the past, actually has to do with modern movements and what's happening now. Interesting. Which is very, very interesting. Because it's problematic not only because it's very stereotypical, but also because it's not getting us the truth either. Exactly. Exactly. So it's quite interesting to see what societal movements happen when um, methodology changes, even mm. in something that refers to things 2,000 years ago. That's why I love archaeology personally. <laughs> However, using the pelvis as an indicator has continually been used as the most accurate factor. There are a couple of areas and notches on the pelvis which have very long sounding fancy scientific names mm -hmm. but basically you can use these areas and the size of them to determine if a body is male or female because these are things which differ distinctly mm -hmm. so that's that is your like surefire way if you've got a full pelvis you got this you know but what if you don't have a pelvis anyone who's ever done any archaeology you know that you never find things complete um pots aren't going to be complete humans are also definitely not going to be complete um especially like so in the ancient world you can get cremations obviously in a cremation you're not going to have any big bone crouched burials you might be lucky because when you crouch down you take up a small space mm. but if you've got a long burial stretched out someone could put a burrow you know, right through a skeleton without knowing yeah. and if they hit that pelvis you're done right we know you can't use a skull, so what are you going to use? Yeah. So interestingly, the way bioarchaeologists actually determine is by using a scoring system. Okay. So there are a number of what are called sexually dimorphic features on a skeleton. And this basically means you've got a range, and on one end of the range is mostly female that have that uh, number or, or size of a, of a thing on their bones, and the other end of the scale is male. Now... It doesn't actually mean this is something that's only on a female bone and this is something that's only on a male bone. It means this is more often on a female bone than a male bone. Yeah. So the point scale basically means this skeleton has more features that are more commonly seen on a female bone than a male bone. So we put it as probably a female. Yeah. So your scale ends up being female, probable female, male, probable male or indeterminate. Okay. And this is great because you, you can't you just can't tell if you don't have the pelvis so actually just admitting it from the get-go admitting that you have to just kind of go mm -hmm. on this sliding scale i think is really good for archaeology in general you get into a lot of problems when archaeologists stand there and say something very definitive when actually there's no way to prove it it's like nothing can be definitive really no, no. and it's almost like gender is a spectrum oh my gosh <laughs> And this gets even more complicated because um, children's skeletons or adolescent skeletons, for instance, are normally just left indeterminate because oh. those features don't exist on those skeletons until you go through puberty sometimes. So you're looking at it going, no way. Um, so yeah, the sliding scale is much better than the binary <laughs> yes. for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but the thing is, is even if you get that, even if you get that sliding scale, or even if you have the pelvis, what does it actually mean to have a female or a male skeleton? Mm -hmm. It's really important to note that our idea of someone being born physically male or physically female doesn't exist before the 17th century. Okay. Prior to the 17th century, if you read historical documents on medicine, for instance, they actually indicate that sex is something which is assigned rather than assumed. So 
because there's little understanding on how sex determination works in the body because you know scientists still thought you know if a woman was sad you'd send her to a mental asylum or something right like we we are not at the stage of actually understanding what goes on in the human body before yeah. the 17th century still a bit of guesswork exactly it's only in the 18th century that anatomists start to actually go ah yes this is the difference between you know, a male fetus and a female fetus there's no idea prior to the 17th century that your baby is going to be one sex or another. That concept doesn't exist. Oh, okay. Which is crazy to think about. Yeah. But even even if a skeleton is female, it doesn't mean you can actually talk about a woman who lived in the past. And this is the other thing, is that gender archaeology, which is a really, really cool field of topic, mm -hmm. arose from feminist archaeology. And it focuses on um, deconstructing this binary. Yeah. In fact, researchers who use DNA to determine an individual's sex do not interrogate a connection between the sex marker and the gender at all. So even if you, you don't have the pelvis, you don't have anything that you can use your sliding scale to determine, so you send the DNA of a skeleton off for testing, uh -huh. the DNA people will give you back a sex marker, but they will not say this is a male or a female individual. They'll just give you back the marker. Oh, okay. It's completely separated now yeah. because you you don't know that. Yeah. So, but for us to properly discuss this, we we need to understand like what came before this. Why why has that been what's happened yeah. um, in modern scholarship? So we have two sex and gender models in previous archaeological thought. The first is the two sex two gender model, which is basically gender is the same as sex is a binary, you're either male or you're either female, that's it. The other one is a model of sex gender, which is that sex is accepted as the binary of what you are physically, your anatomy, mm -hmm. but gender is understood as the interpretation or a symbol of construct, but that this construct has to be associated to your anatomical sex. So both of these models basically say the gender has to correlate, even if ancient societies didn't know that you had to be born one or the other mm. these these theories basically say they have to relate and that's why they've been disproven because we know that that's not the case yeah and the idea that gender then becomes a cultural expression of that sex indicator is difficult because one we have to acknowledge that intersex people exist and have always existed yeah. as well as the fact that um cis bodies the bodies of cis people will also have variables which are not accounted for. You can't see your skeleton. You can't see your organs. Um, I mean, if you can see your Thank skeleton, God. please go to a hospital because you're not supposed to see your skeleton. You could have any number of the sexually dimorphic traits on your skeleton and you wouldn't know because it doesn't affect you in the slightest. But it means when someone digs you up a hundred years later, they might be like, oh, actually, mm. on the sliding scale, I'm not sure. So how can you use these models to determine that when actually everybody, every single skeleton of a person has a sliding scale? Yeah. And that's basically why people have gone, no, you can't, you can't actually relate these things anymore. So with this in mind, archaeologists tend to use the forensic evidence of the bodies from funerary sites, but also coupled with the material evidence in order to create a full picture of the deceased. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, in the Saxon Cemetery in Wolverton, there is a distinction between bucket burials, which are associated with women, and okay. knife burials associated with men. But this isn't consistent across the board, as the Saxon Cemetery has a female individual buried with a spearhead. But if we see a spearhead, we're thinking, oh, actually, that, that's normally associated with male burials. Mm -hmm. Over 50% of the 80 graves with human remains in 
were not able to give a determinate sex to. So is it really fair to say dagger, sorry, uh, knife burials are male and bucket burials are female when yeah. over 50% of your graves you can't even give a, a gender, uh, sorry, a sex marker to? It's, yeah, it's just overgeneralization. It does. It? It, it very much is overgeneralization. And interestingly, the burials with weapons, so with say axes, swords and spearheads, the majority of those were actually undetermined. But they were labelled male because they've got a say axe, okay. they've got a sword, they've got something manly. And it's mm. like, well, actually, you don't know that. You have no idea. Mm. This, unfortunately, is just perpetuating our modern culture onto an ancient culture, mm. um, which is unfairly biasing the archaeology. We, we shouldn't be putting these ideas on what we're digging up because we aren't those people, we aren't from that culture. What's quite interesting about the Saxon burial at Wolverton as well is that the um, monograph this burial explains that uh, the spearheads, which are found in the female burials, quote-unquote, are more likely to be we uh, weaving battens rather than spearheads. Okay. So... A weaving baton, for those who don't know, is basically a long piece of bone, metal, wood, whatever you got, that you put in between the warp and weft of an upright loom right, yep. to keep things in place. I don't know. I've never woven before in my life. I am just telling you based on what I've seen reenactors do. But you have used a spear. I have used a spear. I can tell you about a spear. It is super easy to tell the difference between a metal weaving baton and a weapon. You x-ray it. If the edges are hammered, that means they were sharpened. So it's going to be a spear. These have not been x-rayed, so there is no way to determine whether it is a weaving baton or whether it is a spear. However, we have an x-ray machine, which means I can do it. <laughs> yes. So that's a, that is a project that is forthcoming. Yes. I will update when I have done the x-rays. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, but why would you just assume? If you can't x-ray it, why would you assume that just because it's in a female burial it's a weaving baton? Mm -hmm. It's, um, again, you're putting that concept onto something which doesn't necessarily have that same concept existing with it. Yeah. Um, weaving batons also very often um, resemble short swords rather than spearheads as well, so I'm a bit like yeah. umming and eyeing about the, uh, the weaving baton identification to begin <laughs> with, but that, you know, I'm not the one who dug it, so I don't know, I wasn't there at the time. Yeah. But yeah, x-rays will, will literally show you the difference there. So you just kind of think... If you just stop and think about it a bit more, you might it's, actually... People have a need to put things into neat little boxes, don't yeah, they? Absolutely. Um, and it's something we struggle with these days because we are all individuals and we don't all fit in neat boxes. Yeah. And we have to make the effort to do the work and not just have things so easy all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are, there's a lot of examples of this. Like I was picking on the Saxon cemetery at Wolverton, but you know, that was excavated fantastically. The stuff was mm. conserved in it really well. This is just something that's true with all archaeology. And um, one of the most famous examples of this is the Burka warrior grave. Um, so this is a burial from Sweden where a body was found with the grave goods of an elite, Vi an elite Viking warrior. In the late 19th century, this body was thought to be a man. It's in a fancy burial, it's got lots of weapons, look at these Viking warrior shinies. Yeah. DNA analysis in 2017 revealed the sex marker of the skeleton to be female. Right. This is super common. Graves are assumed male or female based on the context, the bodies are ignored, or the bodies are looked at very briefly. Um, but you need to have both factors, right? Mm. Um, and there's other examples of this as well, and bog bodies always, always get... Um, called the, the, the other sex because of the um, 
the stereotype that was manifested that bog bodies were um they're uh, basically people who've been punished for um being in same-sex relationships which is not mm. true at all and so there were these two bodies found together and people went oh it must be two men that's why that's why they're bog bodies no it's a man and a woman it's got nothing to do with that but it gets even more complicated at that point because even if you can correctly sex the skeleton Gender is a completely different category. We know that the concept of a third gender exists in a ton of cultures. Some of those still surviving. Yeah. And we know that ancient cultures ha were familiar with and had prevalent trans and non-binary people in them. So this Burka warrior, okay, the skeleton is female, doesn't mean that the person actually identified as female. Yeah, That's not part of that discussion at all because you don't have the evidence of that. And this, it gets quite difficult. You know, how do we factor this into the archeological record? If we understand that the sex of a skeleton and the perceived gender of grave goods are not connected, how can we then use the grave goods to determine or try and infer the gender that the person lived at? How can we reconcile mm. it? And what role does the wider cultural context actually play in this? Um, one thing that always cracks me up is mortaria in the Roman period. So a mortaria is a big bowl um, and it's got a rough grain at the bottom and it's used for grinding things like flour and milk. They're one of the most common finds. Go to any museum with a Roman section, bam, you'll see a mortaria. Super obvious. Are we going to have one in ours? We do have some. They're very fancy <laughs> as well. They're associated with cooking and cooking is associated with women in the ancient world except for the fact that the largest consumer of these bowls was the Roman army ah. who needed to prepare food for themselves. And obviously women weren't allowed in the Roman army. So take mm -hmm. one guess of who's doing the food prep. It's not women. No. So this is an object that people look at and go cooking, right? Associated with the kitchen, but it's not. These were stamped with the marks of legions on them. These were the objects that the Roman legionaries were carrying around so they could make some bread. Yeah. And you kind of have to, you have to look into the actual history and kind of remove your modern stereotypes when actually perceiving how these objects interacted with people in a certain period. Mm -hmm. um, and it's difficult because I think for right now, the answer is we can't, we can't do this properly. No. And that's okay. It's okay that we can't do it properly because that's what makes archaeology fun. You, it's a science. You have a hypothesis, you show your work, you make a discussion. If you don't have a concrete answer, that's not the end of the world. No. But you've done the work to kind of get to as close of an answer as you can. So what does this actually mean for archaeology in Milton Keynes? This is a podcast from, by the Milton Keynes Museum. So other than talking about the Saxon burial, <laughs> I should probably actually talk about Milton Keynes. Um, really for me, the Saxon burial is kind of my main focus when yeah. thinking about this because it's a really interesting um, transitional phase burial that has DNA sampling done to it and it was super ethnically diverse. We had people from the Balkans that were actually buried in that cemetery. And I think when you're dealing with human beings, that diversity doesn't just extend to ethnicity, right? It extends to the fact that everyone is an individual and everyone is going to be different from everyone else. Diversity isn't new. It's not a new made up concept that people are now pushing. It's shared by humanity in all periods. So maybe we as archaeologists need to reevaluate how we actually identify what it means to be a woman in the archaeological record and what it means to be a woman in the past and try and not put it, try and not actually think about it as relating to our culture at all, but yeah. to really look at these ancient cultures and go, these people did not have the same view as gender as we have. How do we then reconcile those ideas? And maybe before we actually talk about, you know, generic women in the ancient world, maybe we need to look at it as an individual basis rather than trying to make generalizations. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. There's a lot that needs to be done and there's a lot of really cool discussion to be had about it. Like, where do we go from here? Um, how can we reassess archaeological evidence with textual evidence? And what can we actually learn from it? I don't, there's no answer. It's no. just an interesting topic that I yeah. wanted to bring up. <laughs> I think there's a lot, a lot of it for me, what I think is about people being um, not lazy, but just like, there's more work involved in treating things as individuals isn't there absolutely it, it takes a lot more effort and we have to be ready as a society to make that effort because we are excluding people from the story of history because we are not willing to make the effort to actually investigate fully and thoroughly or we don't have the ability to investigate fully and thoroughly yeah. so <clears throat> we need to yeah we need to be aware of that and make sure that everyone knows that some things don't have answers mm -hmm. and we need to be okay with the fact that some things don't have answers we're very like as a as a society we're just very like surely everything has an answer surely we can find it out um but actually sometimes we can't yeah absolutely i do think um one of the things that's always gotten me about archaeology is um people's desire not to use textual evidence because it's biased like okay it's biased we know it's biased that's fine as long as you acknowledge it there's no reason why you can't use a source yeah. and the amount of evidence we have for um trans non-binary people in the ancient world is huge i mean the roman emperor elagabalus famously um offered a crazy amount of money for a physician who could um make elagabalus physically female Oh, okay. And that's that's recorded. That is something that we know in textual evidence. Um, you've got Hatshepsut, a uh, famous ruler of Egypt who was physically female and never portrayed themselves as female on any statuary, in any um, epitaph or anything like that. And you have to think to yourself, you need to look more closely into the culture into the into reading actually what do these cultures think about gender what is their perceived notions and how your perceived notions may be coloring what you're viewing as important versus yeah. what that culture viewed as important because we you know viewpoints don't stay the same over time like Absolutely. they evolve they go backwards they evolve again you know things don't stay the same so the way we think these days or the way most of people think these days is not the same as people used to think yeah. and we have to um make sure we acknowledge that and accept it yeah so that's your crash course on intersectionality and archaeology for this month <laughs> um yeah we hope you enjoyed it because we feel like this is such an interesting subject and um we yeah we're a bit long today but i think like so it's much been, to go into though it's, it's so been much. interesting hasn't it this yeah. is why i was so excited at the beginning <laughs> yeah me too talking about some good stuff yeah absolutely <laughs> What are we talking about next month? I think we are celebrating our Paralympic exhibition. Yes, we are. That has just opened as well. So that's something you can come and see at the museum. And we'll have some people on to talk about Paralympics in general and hopefully in Milton Keynes specifically as well. Looking forward to it. Me too. Excellent. See you next month. See you next month. That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook, and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk.